Christ Church Kingwood is a Christ-centered church that seeks to proclaim the gospel in both word and deed by glorifying God and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us now as we worship together in the ministry of the word. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Good morning. The scripture reading for this morning is Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. It says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my hope, my eager expectation and hope, that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Let's pray together. Father God, as we just read in Psalm 57, we give thanks to you, O Lord, among the people. We will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Amen. All right. How's everybody doing? School's, school's back in, more people here. You good? No, you're not. You're sick of this heat, aren't you? Yes. Right. You got to be honest here. You can lie everywhere else. Uh, it's so hot. But I wanted you to consider something before we get going. This is the last really hot day, I think. Right? This is the big one. We're supposed to hit 108. But if we hit 110, we set a record. So we could have gone through all of this for nothing, or we could set a record today. So let's pray towards that end. I call it the um, 110 campaign. So you just pray about that. But that being said, uh, do I, am I loud? It feels a little loud. Okay, because I mean, I like yelling at you, but I don't need this. So last week, we talked about joy and suffering. Maybe that's why it's so hot. Um, we looked at this paradox between the sovereignty and goodness of God and the reality that we as believers, we're going to suffer in this life. And it's one thing for us to gather on Sunday and talk about joy and suffering on this cerebral level or a theological level, but 
actually experiencing this kind of joy in suffering, it's entirely different than us discussing joy and suffering. I would say it's impossible apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The joy that Paul had was a supernatural joy. It wasn't a product of his knowledge or his discipline. Those things probably helped shape his heart in the midst of it, but true joy comes from the Spirit. It is quite literally a fruit of the Spirit. Paul's eyes and his heart had been opened to the abundant treasure of fellowship with Christ. A treasure that was more significant than his own suffering, more valuable than his own reputation. And as we see in our text this morning, loving Christ and magnifying Christ was more valuable to Paul than his own life. And I know we would all love to experience this joy, but how? How do we experience this supernatural joy? And I would say, I am certain that it begins with prayer. It has to begin with prayer. If, if we as a church, the people of God, are not first and foremost leading one another to the throne of God in prayer, then we are failing. If we're not corporately and individually humbling ourselves before our creator, then we will not experience the joy that Paul is describing here. If we want to live a life of bold action like Paul, if we want to see lives transform and, and strongholds of sin broken down in our community, then we must live lives of unceasing prayer. We have to pray that the magnitude and the glory of Christ that we read about in Scripture and talk about on Sundays would become a reality in our hearts. We must pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, our eyes would be opened to the true gospel mission that we've been called to as believers. Because only when our hearts are engaged on this level can we taste this joy that transcends life. Only then can the immeasurable value of Christ move from our lips to our very lives. And we saw this Christ-centered joy last week as Paul talked about his current situation, the suffering he was facing from both inside the church and outside the church. And now Paul's gonna shift gears to talk about his future. So as we're gonna see, Paul has an uncertain future but a certain joy. In verses 18 and 19, Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. This will turn out for my deliverance. And when Paul says, this is going to turn out for my deliverance, he's not talking about release from prison. It's something far more important. He is talking about ultimate vindication. And to see kind of the power of this phrase, we have to read through the lens of a first century reader. And when we do this, we realize that Paul is actually quoting Job here. He's quoting from Job chapter 13. 
He's calling to memory this story of Job's life, which was a big story of suffering, obviously. If you remember, Job lost everything, livestock, home, family. He was covered in sores and sitting around this fire, scraping his wounds. And his friends were telling him that all of this calamity that had befallen him must be due to his sin, right? Must be something that you've done. It must be a product of your failure. These guys were acting really just like the disciples that we talked about last week when they saw a man that had been blind from birth and they say, hey, Jesus, who, who did the sin? Was it this guy or was it his parents? Job's friends were stuck in this same faulty frame of mind. And Jesus reminded the disciples, it was neither that man or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so Job's friends are like, bro, repent. You need to repent. You obviously brought this upon yourself, but Job knew better. Job responded to his friends saying, keep silent and let me speak. Then let come to me what may. Why do I put myself in jeopardy and take my life into my hands? Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. And then Job says in verse 16, indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance. You see, Job was a righteous man whose suffering was not due to his sin, but because he was faithful, because he was upright. And we read that at the beginning of the book. God was demonstrating to Satan that the righteous worship because of who God is, not simply what he does for them. Job's friends, they cared for him, but they had a faulty understanding of God. They were telling Job to just have more faith, confess your sin, and God's going to make your life great again. And in that moment, these friends were the voice of the enemy. They were urging Job to react to his suffering exactly how Satan claimed that he would. But Job's love for God outweighed everything else in his life. He says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And see, like Job Paul didn't know everything that God was doing or how it would all work out, but he was confident that God was working his glorious plan of redemption through him. That his suffering was part of something far greater than himself. And so Paul chose to employ the words of Job to point the Philippians to God's sovereign plan in this life to point to the reality that even if great suffering and struggle comes, God is greater. And that ultimate deliverance has been promised for all who are in Christ Jesus. So Paul is responding to the jealous leaders that we talked about last week. He's responding to the Philippians who fear for Paul's life. He's saying, I've entrusted my life and my eternal destiny to God. I believe that my circumstances will turn out for my deliverance, whether in life or in death. Because 
life or death wasn't Paul's greatest concern. It just wasn't. We read verse 20, he says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So the driving concern in Paul's life was not that he should be released from prison, It wasn't, am I going to live or die? It wasn't, I hope that if I do die, it's relatively painless. But it was that nothing he did, he would be ashamed of. Nothing he did would disparage the name of Jesus. His expectation and his hope is that he would have courage so that Christ would be exalted in his body no matter what the verdict of this trial is. And he asked these believers in Philippi for their prayers that he might be strengthened towards this end. All of this being for the purpose that he not be ashamed. And shame is not something we enjoy, right? It's that horrible sense of guilt or failure when you just don't measure up in front of the people whose approval you like so much. It's what you feel when your spouse catches you in a lie or when your boss points out the costly mistake that you made. It's that moment when we as parents realize that we're treating our kids as if we were another two-year-old responding to a two-year-old with the same childishness. But what's the opposite of shame? What's the alternative to being put to shame? It's being respected, loved, honored as an honest spouse. It's being praised for your hard work by your boss. It's the strong embrace of a child after loving discipline. The opposite of being shamed is being honored, usually. But Paul was an unusual person. Christians ought to be very unusual people. For Paul, the opposite of shame was not that I might be honored. For Paul, the opposite of being put to shame was that Christ might be honored. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. For Paul, the message was more important than the man. And what you love determines what you will feel shame about. If you love for people to think highly of you, you will feel shame when they don't. If you love for people to praise your wonderful children, You will feel shame when they act poorly in public. If you love success, you will feel shame when you are unsuccessful. But if you love Jesus, if you love for others to think highly of him, you will feel shame when Christ is belittled on your account. See, Paul loved Christ above all else. He loved Christ with all his being. As he says in chapter three of this book or this letter, he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. 
I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So whenever something is of tremendous value to you, when you cherish something because of its uniqueness or its power or its beauty, there is this inevitable longing to draw others' attention to it so that they can share in your high regard. It's called worship. Pastor Tim Keller would say, worship is completed in the sharing. That is, when we truly love and worship something, we cannot help but share it. We have to share it. The very act of worship compels us to tell others. Our worship is completed in the sharing. And that's why Paul's all-consuming goal was that people might magnify Jesus because Christ was of infinite value to Paul. He wanted other people to appreciate and magnify Christ with him. His petition for prayer to the Philippians was not for release or avoidance of death, but for the unwavering proclamation of the gospel in all circumstances. Because it would be easy for believers to look at Paul, where he's at, sitting in prison, right? The super apostle, and say, what's the value of Christ now, Paul? Is God still good, Paul? This is undoubtedly what some people were asking. And so Paul says in verse 20, 20, my confidence is that Christ will be honored, will be magnified in my body, whether I live or I die. Because death is a threat to the degree that it frustrates our goals to the degree that it inhibits our greatest desires. Death is fearful to the degree that it threatens to rob you of what you value most. But Paul valued Christ most. He looked at death and he didn't see it as frustration. He saw it as an occasion for the fulfillment of his highest value, that Christ might be magnified. He saw it as an opportunity to be with Jesus, which was his ultimate goal. So what Paul's basically going to say is, hey, if they kill me, I win. I beat you, I'm there, I'm with Jesus. I get to go home and I can't wait. But if they don't, I'm gonna keep working. I'm gonna keep serving and loving and planting churches. That's basically what Paul says in in verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then in the following verses, he kind of unpacks this. He says in verse 23, I'm hard pressed between the two, right? That's weird. I'm not really sure. He knows he has no control over his death. He's resigned to God's plan for his life, but he just takes a moment, right? He's in prison, might might as well think about it. He's just pondering, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. That's far better. Really, Paul? (laughs) Really? Better than all my friends? Better than my spouse? Better than my children? Better than that promotion? Better than a long retirement? Paul's like, yes, 
without question, infinitely better than all of those things. And the degree to which we will magnify Christ in our dying is directly related to the degree we magnify Christ in our living. To the degree that we believe that fellowship with him in heaven is more to be preferred than any person or anything on this earth. As Jesus said in Matthew 10, 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. When we come to the hour when everything will be taken away from us but Christ. The joyful truth of our condition is that in Christ, we have everything and more. When we die as believers, we find peace and love and abundant satisfaction. The the longing for joy and meaning and purpose is fulfilled in Christ. The pain of death The struggle in death of believers is for the rest of us who are left behind, right? So those of us who are still here, we mourn the loss of a friend, of a mother, of a child. We have to struggle in the midst of this void. But our hope and our joy is knowing that that person that we loved is so far better off with Christ. They are worshiping at the throne of God. They are resting in his glory. But the greater question for all of us sitting here today, since none of us really know how many more days we have on this earth, is how are we going to magnify Christ in our bodies today? Or tomorrow? Or this week? Or at work? Or at home? Paul didn't just say to die is gain, right? He said to live is Christ. And in verse 22, he explains this phrase saying, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. So he's torn between the two. I could live, I could die. He knows death is far better, but he's convinced that he's going to continue to struggle alongside these Philippians, continue to encourage and shepherd the body because it's necessary. He said, convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that your joy in Christ might overflow. It's kind of mind-boggling to me, this guy, Paul, right? He's crazy. Like, I watch Braveheart, one of my favorite movies, and I fantasize about what great cause I would die for, about the strength I would have to lay down my life for something greater than myself. And here's Paul staring at death saying, that's my ultimate joy. That's it. That's, That's the win, Being with Christ is what I desire. Death for Paul was the easy road. But he says, because of my love for the church and for those who have not yet heard the message of Christ, because of the gospel partnership that I value so much, I will press on in life 
So he just recasts the question. What are you willing to die for? Hmm, I don't know. Let's talk about it and fantasize. He's like, what are you willing to live for? That's a hard question. It's kind of like when Jesus said, he who loses his life for my sake will find it. What are we willing to live for? Because it's so easy to let our minds wander in the fantasy world where we go about our daily business of serving our own desires and seeking our own glory while thinking about some imaginary moment or some choice that's going to define our lives, right? Our own little, for such a time as this moment. But what Paul is saying and what Jesus is saying is that the ultimate sacrifice, the life we as believers have been called to, is to daily lay down our lives for the gospel. To lay down our self-seeking, to lay down our pride and our envy and our bitterness every single day. Because, look, I'd run into oncoming traffic or a burning building to save an elderly lady. Who wouldn't? Don't raise your hand. I would risk my life, maybe ignorantly for her, no problem. But if that elderly lady was my neighbor, would I invite her over for dinner? Hmm. Will I take 10 minutes out of my super, super busy pastor day to talk to the person sitting out in front of Starbucks who's obviously hurting? I'm really busy working for Jesus. Our lives are not defined by one big moment of awesomeness or one big moment of failure. They're defined by a million little choices, a million little chances to trust Jesus in the mundane, in the unfantastic reality of our daily lives. To live is Christ, Paul says. And a life laid down for Christ means fruitful labor. As I mentioned earlier, Paul is thinking about these options here in his letter. But what strikes me and how Paul evaluates his options and how we tend to do this is like there's this difference. Obviously, Paul's different. He's looking at these options but his primary concern obviously isn't himself. It's weird. It's the church. He looks at option A and option B and concludes like, hey, death is the best thing for me. But a life of fruitful labor, which means more struggling, more suffering, probably more beatings and stonings and shipwrecks and lashings, that's what's best for the church. That's what's best for the gospel. That's interesting. What would it look like if we weighed our options that way? When we look at job changes or retirement plans or where we're going to live, do we ask what's best for the church? Do we ask what's best for the people we have covenanted with? Do we ask what's best for the advancement of the gospel in our community? And I know that's un-American. I get it. To think of others as much as ourselves or more? 
It's that place where scripture and the gospel, it, it starts to make us a little bit uncomfortable. It's that aspect of gospel partnership that bumps up against the individualistic, self-serving idea in our minds that has been pumped into our brains our entire lives by this culture. And there is a visceral response to this kind of intrusion into our autonomy. Culture says, this is your life, your choice. Do what's best for you. Protect you because this life is about you. You, 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 you. But scripture says you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. So honor God in your bodies. But this little self-serving voice is strong in our society. It's a voice that's praised and promoted in our cultures. To evaluate our decisions based on the gospel is crazy. To look at the needs of the community over our own desires is not normal. It's the kind of thinking that comes from the mind of someone that would say something so absurd as to live as Christ and to die as gain. So all of what Paul has said in this first chapter about his situation and his future is for the purpose of strengthening and encouraging the church. Paul's talked a lot more about himself than he normally does. But in chapter two, we're gonna see why. Paul's hope is not simply that they will be comforted by this joy or by the story of how he processes the struggle. He says that he wants them to complete his joy. Complete my joy. How? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. Like, see life and struggle and joy like I see it. This life-encompassing vision for the advancement of the gospel, which transcends life itself, is what each and every one of us has been called to. The point that Paul's trying to get across to the Philippians and to us is, don't lose sleep about my suffering. Don't lose sleep because I might die. Lose sleep over the lives of those who don't know Jesus. Lose sleep over the brothers and sisters who are struggling with their faith. Lose sleep over the fact that there are areas of your life where sin and comfort and bickering and envy are bringing shame to the glorious name of Jesus. He's calling the church to immerse itself so deeply in the word of God and in prayer that Christ is seen for the ultimate treasure that he is in our lives. Death will come. It's coming to each and every one of us when God decides that it's time. There's no getting around that reality. But the question we have to wrestle with is how will we, as his children, magnify God in our lives? 
How will we count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing him? Striving to live a life that will not, we will not be ashamed of when we stand before him in glory. So if I had to summarize everything that Paul has kind of called us to thus far in this letter, I would say we are to engage in gospel partnership, pray for gospel advancement, strive for gospel proclamation, and die to ourselves that the gospel might flourish. And my prayer for this community is that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to the incomparable love we have been shown in Christ that we would pray without ceasing for our eyes and our hearts to see and experience this love, and that we would live out our call as agents and ministers of reconciliation in this community, as a people who have been so transformed by the grace that we have experienced that we cannot help but proclaim his glorious name, no matter the cost. Let's pray together. Father God, we ask that we would experience this supernatural joy that transcends life. God, we thank you that it is not something that we must earn. It's not something we can muster up by our willpower, but simply receive God, this joy has been purchased for us in Christ. It is ours through the indwelling spirit, so the joy is already in us, just as you are in us. So God, we ask that you would stir our hearts this morning by your spirit. God, that you would expose the counterfeit joys that we cling to, that we chase after and that you would embolden us as a church to live every moment of our lives for your glory. It's in your name we pray, amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thank you for worshiping with us through the preaching of God's word. We exist to glorify God by making disciples. We would love to have you join us in person as we gather together on Sundays at 10 a.m at the Covenant Preparatory School on Hamblin Road in Kingwood, Texas. To learn more about Christ Church Kingwood, visit our website at ChristChurchKingwood.org.